one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space podcast. This is Talking Space episode 329 for the week of Sunday, July 10th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Yeah, what's left of them anyway? <laughs> Good evening, <laughs> Sawyer. How you doing? Trying to find what's left of me as well. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Hello all and good to be here. And welcome as well, Gina Hurley. Hello. I'm ready to go. Let's go. I agree. Let's do it. So let's begin with uh, the most current space news, which is the STS-135 mission, which successfully launched on Friday, July 8th, 2011 at 11.29 a.m. Eastern Time, which was three minutes later than expected due to something that was supposed to be locked into place, but they didn't get the final confirmation of it, but... Atlantis lifted off on the 135th Space Shuttle mission, her 33rd, and the final flight of the Space Shuttle program, and Talking Space was there to cover it, so let's get a little update so far from launch to our current position of where Atlantis is. On uh, launch day two, right after... uh, right after uh, uh, a spectacular launch from uh, the Kennedy Space Center, uh, the uh, the Atlantis crew did what uh, they normally do on a uh, on on a shuttle mission. They broke out the orbital boom sensor system and did a, uh, a wing leading edge survey and a nose cap survey to make sure that there was no damage incurred during ascent. Uh, I know that the folks over at the Johnson Space Flight Center are pouring over those photographs now, and uh, we're probably awaiting uh, information on that. I'll bet that will be forthcoming uh, today. Uh, they uh, went ahead and rendezvoused and docked with the International Space Station at approximately 11.06 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time uh, to begin a, uh, a long, long time of, uh, of uh, cargo transfers and, uh, and at least one spacewalk on this flight. Uh, that, will, that spacewalk will, uh, will occur on flight day five. Again, this is, will be performed by... Uh, uh, Mike Bossom and uh, Ron Guerin, uh, they are to go out and to retrieve a, uh, a failed uh, ammonia, fuel, uh, ammonia pump that had failed uh, uh, this past uh, this past summer, um, or should I say last summer, and uh, bring that one back home for analysis to find out just what went wrong with that particular pump. If you recall, uh, it was almost around the same time last year where um, that ammonia pump failed, and I believe Doug Wheelock and uh, Tracy Caldwell-Dyson had to perform a, uh, a series of three EVAs to go ahead and replace that particular pump. Um, 
uh, also, I believe, too, at, during that period of time, uh, the uh, robotic refueling mission uh, payload is also going to be uh, placed out there on uh, onto the ISS. We had gone over a little bit on that during the, the live show, but for, for those who, who missed it, uh, the uh, uh, robotic refueling mission, or RRM as it's known, is really sort of a, a, a Fisher-Price style box where uh, it has different uh, ports for refueling satellites, and it has sample sample ports or sample refueling points. And the idea is to use Dexter, the um, the uh, Dexter arm on the ISS, to see if it can go ahead and attach to uh, these various points to see if indeed uh, refueling a satellite while it's there in orbit is possible. So that's a, a really really interesting experiment. Um, so that'll, that'll be flight day five. Um, flight day six, if it's required, uh, they'll go ahead and perform a uh, focused inspection of uh, Atlantis's heat shield, uh, followed by uh, uh, more cargo uh, transfers from the uh, MPLM Raffaello, which will be attached, I believe, on flight, flight day three, which is uh, tomorrow. Um, and for the next few days, it'll just be transfer transferring a cargo. Um, on uh, flight day 10, um, they expect to uh, remove the uh, MPLM Raffaello from the ISS and rebirth it into Atlantis. And uh, uh, followed by um, undocking of the, uh, of, of the shuttle, the final undocking of, of an orbiter. On uh, flight day 11, um, I understand though that uh, the flight has been extended one more day to allow for more cargo transfers and so on because this is going to be the last opportunity they're ever going to have to uh, get as much cargo off of the International Space Station and return it as, pos- as possible. Uh, so you'll, you're probably going to see another another uh, day of uh, of cargo transfers there before. Uh, before Atlantis leaves the uh, the International Space Station for the final time, and then of course you'll have uh, a landing coming up on uh, Flight Day 14. So they've got a, a real big packed mission here, and uh, it will it'll be a, a very interesting flight, and we'll be covering it. Let's just bring it back to Launch Day a little bit because <laughs> on, on Launch Day weather was looking very iffy, where it was. Originally, 70% chance of weather prohibiting launch, and yet they still went. So, uh, from what I can understand, they actually broke the rules, didn't they? Well, if you recall, Sawyer, I, th- I think you were you were there um, in this particular press conference. I think you and I were both in there. Um, where uh, Chief of the MMT, Mike Mike Moses, basically said. Look, we've we've gone ahead and um, uh, tanked before, with uh, the outlook being seventy percent unfavorable for launch, and launched had a launch that day. And he also indicated that he was uh, he had gone tanking where he had a ninety percent probability of launch uh, and weather being go, and uh, yet. Um, Weather went sour, and uh, he didn't launch that day. So, you know, it, it's sort of a it, – it's a, it's a sort of gamble. In fact, uh, during the post-launch uh, press conference, uh, Mike Leinbach kind of kidded around a little bit and said, um, you know, we had a, a really 
tough process of uh, trying to go ahead and figure out um, what uh, what to do with tanking. So, uh, you know, our decision process was we flipped a coin, and uh, which I thought was kind of funny. But uh, that, that's, a, you know, essentially, you know, you, you do what you have to do. I mean, the weather w- was, was favorable for tanking. So they went ahead and gambled and, and, uh, and went ahead and, and performed the tanking procedure um, and pressed, pressed on. And weather was still looking okay uh, up until that point. But I think they had a, a little bit of an issue, and if, correct me, Sawyer, with uh, – uh, the RTLS landing site possibly having a little bit of a problem. Yes, but. there were. Uh, the reason was that there were storms within 20 nautical miles of the RTLS. The one constraint, though, was lightning. And the reason that they still said go ahead anyway is because, according to what they said, the storms that were passing by had little to no chance of producing lightning. So they said. You know what? It's the last one. Any other one we would have scrubbed. This one, we are a go. Um, well, the the reason why you don't want to land um, with rain is that it could damage the tile. But they weren't worried about rain. With this, they were worried about the lightning roll. Yeah, but yeah, I, during the post-launch uh, press conference, I believe, and I and and I could be wrong on this, but I believe it was Mike Leinbach sort of explaining that you don't want to perform an RTLS in the rain because it could damage tile, and uh, that was still you know that was still being a factor. But they figured even if you go ahead and you do perform an RTLS, it was going to take and you know about they were saying it would take about 35 minutes to get the orbiter back. Uh, on the ground anyway, and by that time the the rain would have would have left the the area, so it was still kind of sort of you know you, you were still you know you were outside the window, but you're still within within limits, so you know you 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 push the edge of the envelope a little bit. So they gambled and and they gambled and won. So they ended up saying go for launch, and we got down. Now here's the one thing that was interesting. I was doing the live launch coverage, and at T minus one minute, I stopped talking. And they were about to hand over the computer at T-minus 31 seconds. George Diller, the NASA Public Affairs Officer, was counting down. Minus 33, 32. And at T-minus 31, it was supposed to be that it would go over to the ground launch sequencer, which would basically be all the onboard computers for everything from the launch countdown from that point on. And they stopped because of a failure. Now, can you explain if... You could help them figure out what this failure was a little bit and why they still went ahead with it anyway? Well, I believe exactly, Sawyer, it was the infamous beanie cap that just was, you know, in the way. And uh, if if anybody's wondering, that's that's essentially the top. It's essentially a swing arm that sits on top of the external tank, and that gets swung swung out um, uh, at at a certain – I believe it's – what is it, sort of like 31 seconds before launch or 30 seconds before launch that kind of sort of swings out of the way? It, and in this, a little bit before that. Okay. And somehow or other, this thing just stomped. And it was it was essentially still in the way. And uh, I had to go ahead and, and, and do some, uh, some interesting impro- improvising to get it moved out of the way. But they finally did it, and, uh, we, la- we, and uh, we had a launch. But that was a scare for a lot of people there, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, I, um, I was standing in between two television cameramen um, 
watching the launch with a couple other folks and um you know we were we he, he goes okay you know he he he's starting he's starting to give us some updates and all of a sudden he says okay we got a hold and i'm like okay what's going on and i'm noticing that something's kind of weird up top and i'm like it's got to be the beanie cap and uh um I'm like, well, okay, fine. All right. Then it starts moving again. I'm like, all right, cool. Then then we should be all right. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit a bit scary. You should have heard the the holy, you know, the always in the in the audience. But uh, one individual that actually was staying in in our uh, our room basically characterized Atlantis as saying, you know, come on, you know, I want to get out of here. Come on, move the thing. Let's go. And uh, she finally did go. Which is a good thing that it did. Otherwise, weather was looking iffy for the next couple of days, but we had one of the most spectacular launches. And again, sad that it was the final one. Did just a dumb question um, for everybody that, that that did see it? Did it just look extra? Was it just my imagination, or did the the launch look a little slower than previous ones that we've seen? Well, Gene, actually, that was an observation that Mary made as well. She thought it was slower and was momentarily, you know, worried as it started to climb off the tower. Yeah, I was, I was holding my breath there a little bit. Um, I was just wondering if anybody else made the same observation. So I, I was kind of holding my breath there. Uh, I did, but, but maybe- let me just say that I, I was not angry about that in the least because we got to see it a couple seconds longer. If that was the case. Yeah, I was just wondering if you know if Atlantis was just sort of saying you know just taking her bow as she was ascending. For her sake, I hope so. All right. So while we were busy yakking away over at the press site on Astronomy FM for our live broadcast, there was another press conference that was going on, and that was the post-launch press conference. And there are some very interesting comments that were made by launch director Mike Leinbach, right? Yeah, well, this this wasn't actually the the post-launch press conference. This was um, a couple of days before launch, and uh, oh yeah, we there were there. Were some, for this weren't we? <laughs> yeah, we were. Um, the, the, these were were just some reflections that uh, uh, launch director Mike Leinbach had. Um, Bill Harwood uh, from CBS asked the question uh, that. You know, he felt that you know, riding by the vehicle assembly building that morning, that that this launch was going to be different. It was kind of funny. I had the same thoughts as as I wrote in, as well uh, to the vehicle assembly building that that STS-135. This this particular launch was going to be very different. The tenor of it was going to be very different. And um, Mike Leinbach agreed with that assessment. And uh, why don't we just go ahead and play his comments? Um. You know, there are people, uh, millions of people in this country that have, have grown up with the shuttle program and, and have never been alive without the shuttle flying. Any, anyone under the age of 30 has always had the shuttle program as, as, as a part of Americana, and that we won't have anymore. And, and uh, so it, it, I think it, it, it touches people outside the Space Center uh, to a degree as well. Um, inside the Space Center, it's, it's going to be significantly different. Uh, we'll be preparing for the next program, and hopefully we get definition on that relatively soon. And uh, we'll get, get on the business about preparing the Space Center for the next, the next program. Um, it, 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 uh, I'll, I'll tell you, it's getting more and more somber the closer it gets. And, uh, but that doesn't detract from the professionalism and cohesiveness of this team that uh, I've grown to love so much over the years. 
So yeah, I sort of understood that uh, indeed uh, there were there, there's a whole generation that grew up with this program, and uh, you know it's it's been an iconic image of American uh, American know-how and uh, uh, American technological prowess for quite some time, but um, that is now going away, and uh, it's it's maybe a while before we see another. Uh, piloted spacecraft leave pad 39a again so indeed this is this you know it was going to be a different day speaking of pad 39a um mike leinbach also had some uh, comments with with reference to its future uh somebody I'm, I'm trying to recall who that was but had asked the question on how pad 39a was going to be leveraged or if it was going to be you know bulldozed just similar to what pad 39b uh, had done, and indeed, by the way, there's nothing left of the uh, the old shuttle tower over there right now. Um, when I was last there for 134, the uh, remote uh, service structure was pretty much a shell of itself, and the the gantry was still there, but just barely. Um, now, and uh, and that was about a month ago. Um, today, it, it's gone. I mean, you can't see it. So. Um, Mike Leinbach had an interesting uh, answer to that question, so let's go ahead and, and run that clip. Well, let's see. We'll, we'll go through our standard post-launch safing and securing operations. We, we uh, send out a team of about 50 folks, um, maybe on the order of 45 minutes or so after launch to make sure there are no leaks or fires, that type of thing. If there's any damage, we'll repair that damage just to keep the systems in good shape. Uh, from an agency perspective, what, what we're being asked to do is keep Pad A in, in, uh, in shuttle shape, is the way I describe it, don't you know? We're not going to start dismantling Pad A right away. We we need to keep it in, in a roughly shuttle shape in case the next program could utilize some of those facilities out there. Unlike Pad B, where we're taking it all the way down to the ground, so we're, we're going to have a clean pad off Pad B. If anyone wants to uh, come and launch off that pad with their own mobile launcher and their own tower and their own services, and then Pad A will remain relatively the same for, for a period of time. And I, I can't tell you that period of time yet, um, but we, we will not go right into a, an immediate demolition of Pad A by any means. So right now, you can sort of tell that they're kind of hedging their bets. They're thinking, you know, they're uh, going to leave Pad 39A alone, go out there and make the, the usual post-launch repairs, and uh, basically hold it in what uh, uh, Mike Leinbach described as shuttle-ready status. I've also understood, too, that um, for Endeavor – uh, and this was told to me by somebody, and I, I, I so I, I really can't vouch for its total accuracy, but I'll say it anyway, that the, the orders for Endeavor were don't do anything that cannot be recovered from. Basically, don't really, really start ripping the orbiter apart. Um, so it sounds – because it sounds to me, because if you recall, there's one contract out there that still might be – be used by uh, United Space Alliance. The possibility did still exist that – um, you know, that they may want to run Endeavor commercially, but I think I still think that's a long shot. Um, I still say Endeavor is probably going to end up going to the California Museum. Um, so, uh, but again, they, they, somebody's been saying that don't do anything to Endeavor that you cannot really recover from quickly. Um, uh, Mr. Limebach also had some comments about about Atlantis Atlantis coming home. 
and uh, where he, the question was was raised as to uh, where he would prefer Atlantis to be, and obviously he would like it to come home to uh, uh, to the Kennedy Space Center one final time, and uh, to basically tell tell the bird, uh, "Welcome back to your new home, to your new permanent home." But uh, he had some very interesting comments about that. So uh, sorry if you would run that, please for me. Atlantis will be home for the for the duration of of her life, to be sure. And uh, I think I speak for everyone at KSC that it would really stink if we landed out west this time. Um, but <laughs> but uh, the entry flight director, Tony, he'll do the right thing. And if, and if we go west, we go west. That's fine. Um, but we all want to see Atlantis come home here and, and celebrate with the crew when they get off the vehicle and, and uh, be able to look at Atlantis and the, and the great things she's done over her career and, and be thankful that she's home safe. So, yeah, you know, you, you want to go ahead and, and he, he wanted to go ahead and make sure that Atlantis basically came back to Kennedy Space Center, but, uh, you know, conceded that, uh, you know, they'll do the right thing. And if Atlantis needs to go back to uh, come in through Edwards, uh, so, you know, so be it. But uh, it would be kind of nice to, to celebrate Atlantis's long career. Um, with the people that you know, took care of her all these years and um, to also the place where uh, Atlantis is going to be calling home basically for the rest of her life. So, All right. So while we were at the Kennedy Space Center, we got to interview a couple of people as well, which more of those clips will be on a special show coming up within the next few weeks, recapping everything that occurred to us once we get our voices back and we're more <laughs> awake because my voice is going. But anyway... There was uh, an interesting story that I got to hear from one of the people who helped train the astronauts on some of the system. His name was Michael Grabois, who was also on Twitter. And uh, I got to talk with him a little bit about the training. And there's more clips that we'll post on another show. But there was one story that he told that was just too interesting to pass up about the training and a little joke that they played on the commander. So why don't we go ahead and... Uh, Listen to that clip and get a good laugh out of it. From time to time, Fergie, Chris Ferguson, the commander, would come down to us or talk to our team lead and say, we want to stress this case today, so can you write up a script that breaks X? We want to run through this long, complicated scenario, so can you put us in there? And then he'd always fess up at the end of the sim that said, I asked for this one, I knew it was coming, I wanted to see how you guys would react. So, a few weeks ago... The crew came to us and said, we want to get him back. Out of all these times, he's asked for these complex scenarios, and we didn't know what was going on. We want to do a sim where he's the only one that doesn't know what's going on, and the rest of the crew does. So we designed a simulation to stress out the commander, uh, put in all sorts of malfunctions on his side of the cockpit, and wherever we had to put in malfunctions for everybody else, we gave them the script ahead of time. We said, okay, we're going to fail this at this time. We're going to fail this at another time. So the crew was ready for it. And we put in the most obscure electrical bus you could think of, really obscure communication failures, computer failures. And Fergie was really super impressed with the crew when they came up with uh, the answers right away. And uh, so we were taking bets in the instructor station as to when he'd figure it all out. And so uh, we're coming in for a landing on an RTLS, and we had designed it so that uh, the crew is going along the hack, the heading alignment code, making a right overhead turn, 
so that the pilot is facing down, he can see the ground, and the commander cannot. So uh, the scenario, this scenario was uh, a loss of communications due to a fire here at, the, at Mila, which is the Merritt Island tracking station. And so we told them, hey, there's a fire. And we wanted, uh, the idea was for, for Chunky, um, Doug Hurley, to be able to look out the window, and he said, what's that, is that smoke? Hey, Fergie, I think there's a fire out at Mila. And Fergie was so surprised, he didn't think that the graphics generator could provide that kind of detail. And he actually tried to get out of his seat in the motion base while tilted at a 30-degree angle. He kind of puts his arm on his chair and tried to stand up and look out. And he's like, what? You can really see a fire from Milo from here? And then everybody started laughing. And he goes, oh, man, you know what was going on all the time? You guys are jerks. And we all had, it was uh, a lot of fun. We came back down and uh, everybody was laughing because he knew that he had been had and everybody else knew what was going on except him. So, uh, you know, it's a little funny story. We've got lots of funny stories, but not all of them can be told in public. <laughs> so they got him. I, I, I couldn't believe they pulled it off with him on the the whole Mila on fire thing. Because even he knows it's like the graphics on that are great or, you know, they're good, but there's no way they could, you know, do graphics of a fire on it. But that was just hysterical. Yeah, I was listening to that too, and I I was just laughing my my proverbial keister off. I mean, that was just too funny. And uh, uh, given the fact too that uh, uh, it seemed like the crew was was being uh, ridden a little hard, it was a, a good uh, uh, a good break. <laughs> I love how the crew just came up to him like, "We need to do this," and he agreed. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> because. So the Simsups aren't as evil as they appear to be, even though I called them that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they can be. Believe me, they can be. I called them that in an interview clip that we may play another time, but I called him. I said, you guys really are evil, aren't you? He said, that's our job. Indeed. Um, I don't know if it's still in print, but there's a, a, a great book on how, how the shuttle crews were prepared. It's called Before Liftoff, and I'll, I'll get the author for you in a sec, but... Um, it, it's an older book. It, it it dates all the way back to the beginning of the program. But uh, um, if you see if it's still available out there, pick it up because it's it's quite a it's quite a treat to read, and you'll see how evil the the the, the simulation supervisors or simsoups really really are. You know, as far as the uh, as far as the uh, um, you know, how 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 simulations are put together. But uh, they have to be evil. I mean, you know, you go ahead, you overstress folks. Uh, on the ground so that when the little nitpicky things that happen during a flight happen, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this is nothing. So, uh, you know, it, it, it really kind of helps. Which was another thing that I actually asked him. I said, has there ever been a point where, it, you know, the training has come into play during a mission? And he said that, you know, little minor things, but there was, you know, one major one that occurred where he said, you know, the crew came up to him afterwards and thanked him because they said that basically when they saw it happen, they said, oh, it's just another simulation and performed it perfectly. Just looking at it as a sim instead of the actual mission because they'd seen it before. And Sawyer, I, I think somebody, uh, we were talking about this during the pre-show a little bit. Um, I believe you've, there's some interesting news about the Mila tracking station, correct? 
This is actually pretty sad news is that uh, NASA has announced that the Mila tracking station, which has tracked all the flights since the Apollo program and all 135 space shuttle missions from launch to landing, that after landing of STS-135, Mila will be closed for good. Wow. Um, Not even to be th- reused with the future generation of spacecraft. Now, they are closing it down. But why? That doesn't make any sense because they'll need a similar system. Does anyone have any idea why they're ch- shutting it down? Yeah, that was another question I had too. Maybe it's because they think it's antiquated and they're going to go ahead and, and replace it with something else. All it says is that these stations were gradually phased out. This is from a NASA uh, release. It says that these stations were gradually phased out with the creation of the Tracking Data Relay Satellite Constellation, which is TDRS, which the shuttle launched. Uh, but Mila remained operational uh, as it continued to serve over the 30 years of the space shuttle program. And now with the space shuttle's final flight, Mila 2 will close its doors for good and become a part of U.S. space history. Wow. You know, you drive past. Mm. Okay. Yeah, you, you you drive past there in in order to get in you know into the gates and uh, um, that's a big you know, site. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's well, it's, it's tiny, a, but it, it serves a big purpose, is what I should say. Yeah, it, it's a it's a modest site, and you know if if I, it's kind of sad now. If I would have known that, I would have taken stopped and taken a photograph. Because I remember but, driving um, by and looking, I saw the sign. I'm like, oh, there's Mila. And I looked, yeah. and I was. Actually, the reason that we lost our 3G wireless coverage at the press site was because of the Mila tracking station. I also learned the, <laughs> oh, Merritt, really? I- the Merritt Island launch annex. There were a couple of people that actually performed a test a couple launches ago that had it on. They had their 3G on. The second Mila switched on, they lost it. Oh, well. Hmm. <laughs> so that explains a lot for our live coverage. Because it was pulling all of its bandwidth? I don't know the exact reason, but as soon as it switched on, we switched off. Hmm, okay. But it's an amazing site. It's done great work for 30 years, and it's going to be sad to see it go. For sure. Yeah. Piece of history. All right, so we're coming to the end of this show, but during our live broadcast, which will be posted on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com, and will be available on our iTunes stream, the live show will be posted as soon as we get it was aired live on Astronomy FM beginning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time all the way through to 1 p.m. Eastern, two and a half hours. And we cannot end this show without giving a tremendous thank you to Michael Forrester of Astronomy FM, who basically helped engineer the entire thing from the radio studio where he was. He organized everything for us. He helped host the show with their bandwidth and not only broadcast it to everybody who listened to Astronomy FM, but to more than 12 other affiliate stations located throughout the world who picked us up. And we cannot thank Michael Forrester, everybody Astronomy FM, and all the radio stations that picked us up for their support. And if anybody is listening who first heard us from the live show, we welcome you to the show and uh, we hope you'll continue to enjoy it. Yeah, Michael told told me that. Uh, you know, I asked what the final tally was on on the uh, affiliates that were listening to, and he told me uh, what they were. And I said, okay, no pressure. <laughs> Which and, until we, yeah, there was no pressure with uh, the international stations. We were joined by 
besides throughout the United States. We were joined by a couple of stations from Canada, Australia, England. And the most amazing thing was how many people tuned into this show. And we cannot thank the hundreds of thousands of you that joined us. Yeah, I also want to want to thank everybody that uh, kind of stepped up to the microphone a little bit and uh, decided to, to spend some time with us during that uh, that second hour. Uh, we had a lot of folks just coming on over, talking about their their uh, their launch experience, and just talking about some of the emotions they had uh, uh, for that. And uh, there was a whole bunch of people that did that, and I just want to want to say thanks. Um, I know it was a rather emotional moment. Um, I know it was, um, you know, kind of kind of tough for for people to share their their emotions at that point in time because I think there was, a, I think there were a lot of people, including myself, kind of sort of misty eyed. Oh, <laughs> and because uh, I, I don't think if if you aren't misty eyed after witnessing something like that, I think you you you've got to check to see if you're human. Um, but uh, I, I want to really really extend a, a huge thank you to everybody that that came over. Um, uh, we had some. We had a, uh, a couple of, of really interesting uh, post fl- post launch interviews, and I just want to say thanks to everybody who did that. Not an easy thing to do. I mean, we had people that weren't even on the air that were just sitting right by our tent just for just to be consoled, who were just happy to see it go, but sad at the same time, and just the mix of emotions throughout the entire press site was amazing, and just. For everybody to come on, we cannot thank everybody enough, whether it be just somebody from the tweet-up tent or the people who designed the future spacesuits or astronaut Chris Hadfield from the Canadian Space Agency or anybody else who joined us on the show. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and, um, and send my thank yous also to, uh, to NASA PAO. Uh, they handled some really... Uh, interesting situations for us and uh, handled the logistics extraordinarily well. So I, I want to say thank you and extend a thanks to all that. And I also want to thank um, Sawyer, our driver. Uh, yeah. Her name was Pat, I believe. I believe um, it was. Yep. So when we went out for our accessory track, she uh, was just an incredible lady um, and you know very gracious to, to us. And I wanted to go ahead and, and send out a a huge thank you, thank you to her, um, and a thank you to Anne Marie as well, who was also yeah. a driver that took us around for the SpaceX tour, which was also she was phenomenal. And uh, a huge thank you to her, and uh, the best of luck to her son, who's also in the military. Um, and I'm also going to go ahead and embarrass the heck out of out of somebody here. I um, was just about to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, Mr. Adderman, if it weren't for your mastermind, <laughs> you're breaking up <laughs> of getting all of the, lo- the, the technical logistics together, uh, we could have not done that program at all. So, you know, I, I, I tip my hat to you, sir, as the, far as the. This man uh, spent two or, th- sorry, three. My, let me get this right. This man spent four straight days at the tent getting this set up, whether it be the entire tent, the NASA audio, all the mixing, not just a couple days, four straight days while the rest of us were off having fun. He was out there setting up the tent 
We cannot thank you enough, Mark. I was just sitting out there drinking iced tea, working on my can. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I may not be good, but I'm slow. I don't know about that. Um, you got it. it. It worked phenomenally. We can't thank you enough. And I think we may also have to thank your counterpart there, too, your partner in crime, Mary Ratterman, who helped you with it as well. Indeed, she she did remarkable work up up there, and without with, without the the tireless efforts of you both, I don't think this prog- that program would have worked as well as it did. I mean, these these things are sleep deprivation experiments anyway. I mean, I, you know, the members of, the, of, of this particular team here uh, got about maybe you know three out three or four hours sleep out in of the three uh, days. Yeah, I calculated I mean, it out in the three days. All of us averaged less than 24 – we totaled less than 24 hours in three days combined for all of us sleeping. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, I was down there about 2.30 in the morning for tanking, and uh, um, it was you – know, although you know, it was still a, a neat atmosphere to be in, um, there was still – you know, there was still people in, in the press room and – and, uh, you know, I was actually kind of surprised with the amount of people that were in there. I, I thought I, w- I would hear crickets at 2.30 in the morning, but nope, there were there were a bunch of diehards still in there, and uh, like, like yours truly. And uh, uh, they were all standing by waiting to hear, hear how things were going. And I also so. have to thank a couple of the other people that helped me out while I was down there that, you know, I got to meet, such as um, a bunch of the astronauts who stopped what they were doing to come meet me, such as uh, Mike Massimino, Leland Melvin, uh, who actually gave me an interview, Katie Coleman, Terry Verts, and uh, a big shout-out as well for having me on to the crew of Spaceflight Now, including Miles O'Brien, Leroy Chow, and everybody who works behind the scenes on that program. They did so much that I can't even mention on the air for me, and I cannot truly express the gratitude for that team of that amazing program as well for helping us out here. And while we're thanking everybody, I want to thank members of this team. Um, you guys did an incredible job, and uh, you know, it's just uh, um, <laughs> I, I I couldn't I can't help but uh, but say thanks to to you folks. I mean, you're the best group of people I would ever want to share a microphone with. So you guys are great. And it was nice to finally all be in the same room at the same time without the world coming to a crash. And, yeah, the, know, the space time continuum did not did not open up as I predicted. <laughs> No, we were all under the same tent on the same mics, and it, it worked out. We all finally met each other, and we actually got a couple of pictures in front of the countdown clock, which, by the way, pictures of launch, and maybe we'll throw some of those pictures up there, will be on our blog, which, if you missed it, we kept a special blog for all of our activities during launch. So please, we're still updating it with pictures. Please feel free to check out TalkingSpaceOnline.com slash 135, and by the time this episode is out, we will have launch pictures up there, and we'll see if we can throw some team pictures up on there, too, the four of us all together by the countdown clock. Which, just a personal note on that countdown clock, it is noisy. Yeah, you know, I was afraid that, uh, you know, it, it is noisy and it's loud. You know, it's, and it, uh, you know, that, 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 that sounded scary. I think that it's, it's 60s vintage, though. So 69, yep. Why. Yeah, that's probably why. It was just – I went over there to take the picture. I was, wasn't was sure if it was the wind or not. I put my ear to the clock, and it was the countdown clock. I'm like, how many gears are in this thing? <laughs> uh, any other thank yous from anybody else? Does anybody – because I know there's going to be people we forget. And to anybody that we forget, we apologize. And please know 
that you are not forgotten intentionally. Everybody who helped us out in any way, shape, or form, it is not an intentional forgetting. It's just there are so many people and so little time to remember everything. We're all still running on just a couple hours sleep. But yeah, we know exactly. there are so many more people that we have to thank. And again, we apologize if we left anybody out, but please know that we appreciate everything you do for the show. Yeah, indeed. And and above all, thanks to everybody who listened. Um, you guys are, are great, and thanks for the support. Which, this was the first time that we ever had listeners in six digits. Yeah. Having over 100,000 of you join us was spectacular, so we cannot thank you enough. All right, so we will keep you up to date on the mission. As of right now, landing is either scheduled for the 20th or the 21st of July based on adding extra days. And we will have the live broadcast posted on our website shortly. As soon as we get that, it'll obviously be sent out to all of our social media networks and to your iTunes stream or to your phone or device or wherever you choose to listen to us. But for now, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer. And again, to emphasize, just because the shuttle program is ending, it doesn't mean that the United States is retreating from human spaceflight. Just keep that in mind. And again, um, to the team, thanks so much for all the hard work this week. It was a, it was a joy to work working with you all. Thank you as well, Mark Granerman. It's been a great week. Got some great days coming up yet. Stick with us. I would stick with us as well. And uh, thank you for joining us, Gina Hurley. Yeah, I just wanted to also just, um, in addition to acknowledging all three of you and the hard work you guys have put into the show this week and every other week, uh, I just wanted to also give a shout out to all of the other uh, similar um, media operations like us that are small and have been there during repeat launches that um, due to the extreme um, immersion of huge network media this week, um, a lot of the smaller operations like ourselves were sort of pushed way far down and... um, You know, just to make the comment that I'm glad the media showed up, um, but um, I just want to say a shout out to like Space Vidcast and those guys because they uh, truly um, are dedicated and have passion and have been there for so many launches. And um, it was great. All the big guns were there, but these guys uh, definitely should be checked out and um given their due because they're always, um, you know, they're there constantly and it's their dedication that really, really, um, is going to keep enthusiasm flowing in human spaceflight during this gap period that we're into now. Yeah. Gina space vidcast was there 18 hours. Um, I was talking with Ben Higginbotham after we wrapped up and they wrapped up and, uh, you know, God bless them. I mean, they they do an an incredible job over there, and uh, hats off to them. uh, And uh, I wish them all all the best. And to the to the mainstream media, thank you guys for showing up. You would think you know you would think this was the moon landing with with everybody over there. Although I understand um, somebody was saying it wasn't as much as the the return to flight mission, but it was it was enough presence there. Um, But guys, I have a question for you. Where have you been for the past 30 years? And didn't you write a blog post about this? Yeah, I did. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what happened to you guys? Where were you? 
you know, you, you compare the media presence for SDS-129, you compare the media presence for, for, for even 134, it, it still wasn't as big as this. And all of a sudden, wow, all these all these media f- folks show up to, to see this. And I'm like, you know, guys, I, we pre- you know, NASA sure appreciates you guys coming down and and uh, uh, covering the mission. But, you know, where were you during STS-60? Where were you during STS, you know, you know, 40? Hmm? Just just saying. And again, you can read Gene's blog post about that on. TalkingSpaceOnline.com slash 135, which is our 135 blog. So again, thank thank you to everybody for joining us, and may I quote the Beatles to before we finish off? By all means. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make, and the shuttle has emphasized that indeed. So the best of luck to the four-person crew, and as always, have a great day, night, evening, wherever it may be, where you are, and go Atlantis.